Yep. What, you thought I was done? One episode, the itch was scratched, and now it's over. International War Report, just pack it in. I tried. Fun little experiment, no way. We're in this for the long haul, baby. I said episode two in the next few days, bam. Next few days, episode two. Here we are, baby. We're finishing out the current report. What that means is, today, we're talking about the Tigray War, we're talking about the conflict in Myanmar, and updating you guys on the situation in DR Congo. The next report is about to go live on internationalwarreport.com. Make sure you guys check that out. You can look at past issues of the report under the Past Issues tab on the website. And yours truly is now on Patreon. You can become a member. $2 a month. Huh? What'd he say? $2 a month. You can become a member now. Granted, uh, you don't really get that much in return, but what you do get, a shout-out on the International War Report podcast. I will shout-out all my patrons as soon as you become a member. $2 a month, not even a cup of coffee, just doing it to try and grease the gears here. Uh, the more resources that I have to put into the International War Report, the more we can expand uh, the program. So I want to get into primary sourcing. I want to get into direct reports. Uh, that will come, and it will come quicker, uh, the more support that the program gets. So guys, if you can, you can become a member of the show. My name is Christian Butterfield, and this is the International War Report. First, we're going to talk about the Tigray War. It's an ongoing civil war in Ethiopia. I started today my work recording this podcast with an extensive history of Ethiopia because what's happening today in Ethiopia is related to the turmoil that's gone on there for the past few decades. And you could even draw it all the way back to the 70s and probably even before that. But I don't want to dive too deep into the history of Ethiopia. So I will be very concise and very brief with the relevant context. Uh, and then we'll dive into what's going on there today. Before I dive into that, for those that don't know, Ethiopia is in a region called the Horn of Africa. That's East Africa, where it sort of juts out by Somalia. It's north of Madagascar, so many might be familiar with the island of Madagascar off the southeast side of Africa. Think north of that, on the east side of Africa, you have Ethiopia. Ethiopia's northernmost region is a place called Tigray. The people who call Tigray home, the ethnic group that calls Tigray home, uh, make up about 6% of Ethiopia's population, but these Tigrayan people have for the past few decades held the prominent positions in Ethiopia's government and in their military. 
In the early 90s, Ethiopia's civil war comes to an end. It had been raging since the 70s, and it was an effort by the people to overthrow the military government. Following the civil war, the government was a coalition government led by the TPLF, which is the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. The chair of the TPLF was the prime minister of the country, and he led from the early 90s up until 2012 when he died. His name was Melez Zanawe. After Zanawe's death, the deputy prime minister, Hail Mariam Deselin, takes over. And he has the unfortunate job of leading Ethiopia through a period of unrest following the death of Zanawe. At the heart of this unrest was outrage towards the ruling coalition government. Part of that was the perception that Tigray was overrepresented. They had a disproportionate amount of power in Ethiopia. And another part of it was the government's behavior over the decades and their ongoing behavior at the time of the protests. People were demanding an end to land seizures, to corruption, human rights violations, uh, policies that marginalized other ethnic groups and rural communities. So these protests break out around the country after Helmerium takes over. And over the course of his six years as prime minister, hundreds of these protesters are killed. Ethiopian military forces are using live ammunition to disperse these protests, to crack down on these protests, which is precisely the type of behavior that is being protested against. So by the time 2018 comes around, the threat of all-out uprising is really at Helmerium's feet, and he decides the only way that he can curtail the violence and the calls for reform is to step down as prime minister, which is precisely what he does. He resigns in 2018. After Hail Mariam resigns, the Ethiopian parliament needs to decide on a new prime minister. General elections are not for another two years, so until general elections occur, they need to elect the country's prime minister. They elect Abiy Ahmed. Abiy Ahmed wants to reform the government. He wants a whole new structure to the federal government to be more equitable, to address the people's demands and have a more equitable, more democratic government. He wanted to address that disproportionate amount of power that Tigray had in Ethiopia's government. He forms a new coalition government called the Prosperity Party. It unifies all of the political, ethnic, and religious parties in Ethiopia to participate in the federal government. The TPLF, just like everybody else, is invited to participate in the new government, but they refuse to participate. The TPLF decides that they are going to operate a regional government in Tigray and not participate in the federal government of Ethiopia. 
So the TPLF leaves Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, and they go back to Mekele, the regional capital city in Tigray. And though Tigray remains a part of Ethiopia, and the federal government still exercises governance there, uh, the TPLF tries to execute more and more control uh, independent of the federal government in Tigray. So for the next two years, tensions are really high between the Ethiopian federal government and the TPLF. But Abiy Ahmed has a lot on his plate. Ethiopia is in a hot and cold war with Eritrea, which he went to Eritrea, met with the head of state the first time the two states had met in decades, and he ended the war with Eritrea. That was in 2018, the year he was elected. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for ending the war with Eritrea. That will be important later, so remember that. Abiy Ahmed in 2019 wins the Nobel Peace Prize for ending Ethiopia's war with Eritrea. Eritrea is the nation directly to the north of Ethiopia. The relationship between the TPLF and the Ethiopian government really takes a turn for the worse in 2020 as the general election date approaches. The general elections were originally scheduled for August of 2020, and the federal government kicks the date to an unspecified time. They say, hey, we're delaying the general election because of the COVID-19 pandemic to an unspecified time. Whenever it's safe to have it, we'll have it. But for now, it's suspended. The TPLF argues that the suspension of those elections is unconstitutional and that the federal government is trying to extend its powers and trying to subvert the Constitution. So they hold their elections in September of 2020, amid the COVID-19 pandemic. They then argue very shortly after the completion of the elections in Tigray, which are overwhelmingly in support of the TPLF, that the federal government is now in place illegally, that they are a non-legitimate government because they didn't hold general elections. And they start tabling a bunch of ideas about how to legally govern Ethiopia. One is like a temporary government. Another is a Tigrayan government, big surprise. And they invite other parties to participate in their government. Um... But the rest of the country really views Tigray's elections as illegitimate and illegal. So there's this great impasse between the Prosperity Party and the TPLF. And the TPLF starts accusing the Ethiopian government of amassing troops inside of Tigray and in Eritrea, just north of the Tigrayan Border. So Tigray's north border is the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea. The TPLF starts accusing Ethiopia of amassing troops on their northern border inside of Eritrean territory and at the currently existing military bases inside of Tigrayan territory. 
Tigray decides to take preemptive action against this alleged Ethiopian aggression. On the 3rd of November of 2020, Tigrayan authorities hold a dinner party for officers in the Ethiopian military. And this is an account from those officers which they share later when they are released from prison. About a thousand of them show up to this dinner party where they are promptly arrested and sent to prison in northern Tigray. At the same time, a series of attacks is launched on Ethiopian military bases inside the Tigray region by TPLF forces. So while they're arresting these officers at a dinner, they are launching attacks against Ethiopian military bases in Tigray. And that is the moment the war begins. Over the next several months, Ethiopia and the federal government dominates the war. They capture Mekele, Eritrean troops come down uh, south of the border. They occupy northern parts of Tigray, and the TPLF is forced into the hills of northern Tigray. And they rebrand themselves, they reorganize into an insurgency called the TDF, which stands for Tigray Defense Forces. By the summer of 2021, the TDF has recaptured a lot of Tigrayan territory. Eritrean troops have been fought back into their own territory, and government forces are being pushed further and further south. And that summer of 2021, the fighting is going so well for the TDF that they push into neighboring regions. They push all the way south into uh, the region of Amhara and the region of Afar, and they're bringing the fight to government forces south of Tigray. They begin to feel so confident that they start announcing uh, plans to overthrow the Prosperity Party and install the TPLF as the head of government in Ethiopia. As 2021 progressed, the government started to make progress in a series of counteroffensives. As the Tigrayan forces became overextended and a little bit exhausted, the government used the air force to great effect to push the TDF and the TPLF back into Tigray. And once that stalemate had been reestablished, so once the Tigrayan forces were back inside of Tigray and Ethiopian forces were outside of Tigray, the fighting started to slow down, and that was at the end of 2021. And you fast forward just a few months to March 2022, and the Ethiopian government agrees to a ceasefire, mainly to allow for humanitarian aid. But also, it has to be noted that the government was feeling the full effects of this ongoing war. I mean, at this point, it's been raging for two years. Huge losses on both sides. Civilian casualties 
are off the charts. Every side in the conflict has been accused and prove it's been proven that every side has carried out atrocities. We're talking about mass rape. We're talking about um, mass murder, uh, extrajudicial killings, the executing of POWs, the murder of civilians with uh, machetes, looting, burning, robbing, um, just humanity at its absolute lowest and worst. And it's worth mentioning that the international community at this point is begging both sides to agree to a ceasefire so that humanitarian aid can be introduced into the Tigray region. In November 2020, when the war broke out, the Ethiopian government cut off government services for the Tigray region, and the TPLF did what they could, but they don't have the funds, they don't have the infrastructure to uh, withstand a government blockade on things like food and medicine, so the humanitarian situation is dire. But after the ceasefire took effect this past March, the situation started to improve, and it seemed like a peace deal was very close to coming to pass. The TPLF in August agreed to peace talks brokered by the African Union. They agreed to come to the table, meet with the federal government, and put an end to the Tigray War. Now, when the TPLF agrees to talks, the Ethiopian government remains silent. And within a few days of the TPLF agreeing to engage in peace talks, Ethiopian forces launch a new offensive in southeastern Tigray on a town called Kobo. There was heavy fighting there. Armored elements rolled into Tigray. Uh, the Air Force was back at work throughout the region. Other border towns were shelled across the southern border. A few of those villages changed hands between Ethiopian forces and Tigrayan forces. And then the Ethiopian forces launch a joint offensive in the north from Eritrea with Eritrean troops, the Eritrean Defense Force. So you have Ethiopian and Eritrean troops launching a joint offensive into the northern parts of Tigray, and they capture uh, the border town of Shiraro, but the TPLF was able to hold the line, uh, push back the advance across the rest of Tigray, but they did lose that border town of Shiraro. So what did things look like now? Well, in late September, early October, a U.S. contractor operating reconnaissance satellites releases images of Ethiopian and Eritrean troops amassing in Shiraro and in the area that they've taken around Shiraro. They're amassing troops, uh, armor, supplies, artillery, uh, and the suggestion is that a continuation of this joint offensive is possible and maybe even likely. That is until October 5th, 
when the federal government of Ethiopia agrees to the African Union brokered peace talks. So they agree to go to the table with the TPLF. But let's be clear, this is only after they launched a new military offensive, captured Tigrayan territory, and are going into the negotiations with some kind of leverage. This is the design of Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian federal government. If this were anyone else, you might think of that as a move of savvy statemanship to gain leverage before entering negotiations. But remember, this is the winner of the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize, responding to the acceptance of an engagement with peace talks, with broad military offensives, just to gain more leverage in the negotiations. That's not even to mention the fact that during these offensives, the Ethiopian Air Force bombed the University of Michele, they bombed a radio station in a residential area, and more recently, they bombed a school that was being used as a shelter for internally displaced people. And in that one airstrike, they killed 50 civilians. Now, afterward, the Ethiopian authorities came out and said that the TPLF was using that school as a weapons cache. I don't know if that's true. What I do know is true is that now the peace talks are in jeopardy. The TPLF has been very skeptical in the past few weeks of moving forward in these peace negotiations. Part of that has to do with the African Union and their seemingly poor planning for the event. But another part of it is the TPLF not wanting to go into peace negotiations from an obviously depreciated position. It's worth pointing out that the humanitarian situation alone might have been enough leverage for Abiy Ahmed to get what he wants out of these peace negotiations. So for him to take that gamble with the new military offensive, it was a really bold decision on his part, and in my opinion, totally contrary to his reputation as this peace-loving, Nobel Prize-winning statesman. But here's the thing. There's a chance that Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian government's gamble pays off. That this increased leverage of Shararo and the threat of the continuation of this joint offensive has an effect during the peace talks. And they can use that leverage to get Tigray to agree to join the Prosperity Party or at least work in conjunction with the unified government. Maybe it works out. But if the TPLF refuse to engage in these peace talks following this joint offensive, it'll go down as one of the worst military and political blunders in recent history. Because what happens next? Abiy Ahmed has proven that accomplishing his military objectives doesn't lead to long-term solutions. He had Michele in the first month of the war. He had the TPLF on the ropes, living in the hills. And from that position of dominance, the situation spiraled out of control. 
Here's the bottom line. Right now today, Ethiopia is closer to the end of this war than they've ever been before. All of the work that's left to be done must be done at the negotiating table. The fight has been fought. The lines drawn and redrawn. The effectiveness of the war, the effectiveness of the battlefield as a theater for disagreement, has, in this conflict, run its course. We're going to keep it in Africa, but we're going to move it a little bit to the west to a large country in Central Africa called DR Congo, otherwise known as DRC. The full name is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, the DRC is not to be confused with the Republic of the Congo, which is on the western border of DR Congo. DRC is the larger of the two nations. It's one of the largest countries in Central Africa. It's one of the most minerally rich countries in the world. But in recent history, since the 1990s, the DRC has been host to some of the worst violence in Africa. And these days, it still deals with a number of active armed rebellions, especially in the east of the country. The most prominent of these rebel groups is called the M23. And to understand a little bit about M23's fight against the government of DR Congo, you need to understand some of DR Congo's neighbors, mainly the small nation of Rwanda, on DR Congo's eastern border. Rwanda is tiny compared to DR Congo, and it sits uh, on the almost exact center of DR Congo's eastern border. It's in a Great Lakes region. Uh, to its north is Uganda, to its south is Burundi, and to its east, uh, Tanzania. And like I said, compared to DR Congo, it is a tiny nation. But their influence in DR Congo over the past 30 years has been enormous. In the early 90s, Rwanda went through a civil war and a genocide, where one ethnic group called the Hutus... Uh, massacred uh, another ethnic group called the Tutsis, and they massacred anybody who was sympathetic to the existence of Tutsis. Well, the Tutsis reorganize under the leadership of a man named Paul Kagame, and they win the Rwandan Civil War. A few years later, Paul Kagame becomes the president of Rwanda, and he is still the president of Rwanda today. After the Rwandan Civil War, 
Kagame launches an attack on the government of the DRC. At the time, the DRC was uh, called something different. It was a different nation called Zaire. And Paul Kagame led a direct invasion and also uh, an uprising, a proxy war uh, against the government of Zaire. He successfully overthrows the government and installs his own puppet government, but then his puppet government revolts against him. They fight a second war called the Second Congo War. It's actually one of the deadliest wars fought in the last 100 years on the planet, and it ends with a new government in place for DR Congo and an agreement by all neighboring nations like Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda, they will end their support for the different rebel groups that they were using to engage in this proxy warfare. Here's the problem. Some of those rebel groups refused to engage in the peace agreements. They did not agree to peace. So they continue their armed rebellion. And in the late knots, early 2010s, those rebellions flare up into a larger conflict that ends in 2012. And a lot of the rebels agree to join the government. They agree to lay down their arms. But again, a few of them refuse. Those that refused in 2012 became M23. And they lead an aggressive armed rebellion up until 2013 when they sign a peace deal with the government and they agree to become a political party in DR Congo. That was in 2013. Fast forward to March of this year. M23 throughout that period of time, 2013 to March 2022, has been quiet. In March 2022, they launch a new offensive. They claim that the government of DR Congo has not lived up to their end of the bargain. They haven't lived up to their terms in the agreement. They launch a new offensive in eastern DRC, close to the border with Rwanda and Uganda. So over the next few months, Villages in eastern DR Congo are changing hands between M23 and the Congolese military. The Congolese military is also being supported by UN peacekeeping forces. Uh, they have been in DR Congo in the east since the late 90s, trying to keep a lid on the armed rebellions uh, that are consistently popping up there, consistently operating there. So... This year, the Congolese military has been working with the UN peacekeeping forces to fight M23 in eastern DR Congo. One objective that M23 had in this new offensive was to capture the key border town between DR Congo and Uganda called Bunagana. That controls a supply line between Uganda and DR Congo, and M23 wanted to take control of that town. Since March, they tried to encircle uh, Bunagana, 
And each time they tried, the Ugandan military would intervene. They would um, go into Bunagana and defend it from M23 rebels and support the Congolese military and the Congolese police presence there. In the summer of 2022, in June, uh, the M23 rebels encircled Bunagana and Ugandan military forces didn't intervene. So M23 rebels took control of the town. Once they encircled Bunagana, the Congolese military fled into Uganda, uh, took refuge there, and Bunagana fell to M23 forces. They still control Bunagana today. M23 have also launched consistent attacks against villages and government forces in a place called the Richuru Territory. It's a border region right next to where Rwanda, Uganda, and DR Congo, their borders all kind of meet. And that's where M23 uh, really remains active, is in the Ruchuru territory. Even to this day, those, uh, those attacks, when they do pop up, they tend to be in that area. Now, some of DR Congo's neighbors have responded to this offensive. Um, a new peacekeeping force has been established in the UN um, amongst East African nations. Burundi has sent peacekeepers in. But the one element of this conflict that is central to its beginning and its end is the relationship between Rwanda and DR Congo, and mainly that Rwanda is providing support for M23. The UN Security Council has maintained this position since 2014. The United States government has been pretty consistent on this uh, just this year, Another position was shared by the UN that the support seems to be increasing and becoming more direct. So it does seem that Rwanda is providing support to M23. Last month, President of DR Congo Felix Shisekedi stood up in front of the General Assembly of the UN and outright accused Rwanda of supporting. M23, and even sending troops into DR Congo to fight alongside M23. Now, Paul Kagame and Rwanda deny this, and following those allegations at the UN General Assembly, in late September, Felix Shisekedi and Paul Kagame met in New York with French President Emmanuel Macron, and they agreed to dissolve M23 as it exists today. Here is where things get a little complicated. Since the M23 has launched this new offensive, certain groups, including the Rwandan government and groups like Human Rights Watch, have accused the Congolese military of acting in conjunction with a Hutu rebel group called the FDLR. The FDLR have their origins in the Rwandan civil war and the Rwandan genocide. Uh, they are 
the really the remnants of some of the groups that were defeated in the Rwandan Civil War, they've been exercising this armed rebellion in eastern DR Congo since then. And in the Congo Wars, when Rwanda and uh, the Congolese government were having these proxy wars, the Congolese government offered a lot of support for FDLR. But that was back in the 90s, in the early 2000s. These days, and in the past few years, the relationship has really soured between the FDLR and uh, DR Congo. They are in open armed conflict. Uh, both FDLR and M23 engage in mass rape, in the recruitment of child soldiers, in the operation of illegal mineral mining and trade. So the position of the government of DR Congo is that they are still engaged in open armed conflict with the FDLR. But these recent reports that the Congolese military is working with FDLR to fight M23 in this new offensive complicates the whole matter. So after Felix Shisekedi and Paul Kagame agree to dissolve M23 in New York, Paul Kagame insists that, and today is insisting, that the government of DR Congo also commit to dissolving and ending their support of FDLR. And I think that's a fair demand to make. The question is, when and how are both groups dissolved? And even if it does occur, does it address the issues at the heart of this conflict? Does it address the root cause of this Cold War between Rwanda and DR Congo, which has its origins in the Rwandan genocide, in the Rwandan Civil War, in the First Congo War, in the Second Congo War, and in all of the subsequent atrocities, rebellions, and violent confrontations that have occurred in the region over the course of three decades. There are two guarantees going forward. Number one, if the violence continues between DR Congo and M23, the UN will continue to increase the number of peacekeeping forces in the region. Most of them will come from neighboring countries, and they will come to eastern DR Congo to fight and die in a conflict that has already been agreed upon diplomatically. The second guarantee is that if Paul Kagame took action, meaningful action, cut support for M23, accepted the people who make up that rebellion movement into Rwandan society if they chose to rejoin, and then operated militarily against them if they didn't, then that would make a huge difference, and that he does have the power to do that and do it successfully, and it would end at least that part of the violence in eastern DR Congo. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. Paul Kagame has been president of Rwanda since the mid-90s. He's been in a position of power throughout this entire window of violence. 
The onus and the blame is not all on him. And he's right when he says, hey, casting blame doesn't really help. He's right. But he must also recognize that the power to take truly meaningful action against M23 lies with him. So we have run a little long in episode two. I will make a deal with you, dear listener. Uh, We will start episode three with the Myanmar conflict. It's going to stay in the war report uh, for a while, I think. So with episode three, I'll give you the latest update and I'll touch on some of the content that's been in these previous reports as well as it concerns... Myanmar. Remember to check out internationalwarreport.com. International War Report is on Twitter at INTL War Report. We're on Instagram, International War Report. Uh, guys, I really do want to try and get uh, more guests onto the show, more direct reports happening, more primary sourcing interviews, stuff like that. In order for me to make that happen, I have to have a platform in place for those people to step onto. So I need your help now in building that platform. Uh, Just check us out on social media. Give us a follow. uh, Engage with some of the content. And uh, also it'll help you stay on top of what's coming in the report. Thank you guys so much for listening. Take care.